everyone, welcome back. Going to be covering a book I just read titled Discrimination and Disparities by Thomas Sowell, which you can see right behind me. Now, if you don't know Thomas Sowell, I don't even know what to say to that other than he's one of the best writers ever. He has a really, really addictive style. And I'll tell you this about the book. He pretty much writes two sentence paragraphs, but he packs the information in there. Now, the book has five chapters. I may get to all of them but uh, by the end of the week, but I might finish off Monday, no big deal. But I'm gonna dive right into it here. So there are two basic sides to this whole discussion, which he describes as such. At one end of the spectrum of explanations offered is the belief that those who have been less fortunate in their outcomes are genetically less capable. At the other end of the spectrum is the belief that those who uh, are less fortunate are victims of other people who are more fortunate. And these are obviously the extreme views, and there are plenty of views in between, but nonetheless, pretty much everyone recognizes disparities and that they exist. But it's a matter of how you evaluate it all. So, so first off, having a bunch of prerequisites, such as a high IQ, um, let's say you came from a wealthy family or whatever, it doesn't guarantee you anything. It guarantees you neither a perfect life nor a horrible life. Um, but in fact, in quoting him, we should not expect success to be evenly or randomly distributed among individuals, groups, institutions, or nations and endeavors with multiple prerequisites. Now, to keep this a concise episode, I'm going to jump right into the facts. If you have not read the book, I suggest either doing that first or know you're getting a full spoiler here. The first chapter talks about disparities. As late as 1950, more than 40% of the world's adult population were still illiterate. That included more than half the adults in Asia and Africa. But ask yourself, what does it mean to be illiterate? It means you can't fill out a job application. It means you can only speak to others verbally. It means you might not even be able to sign your own name. In Detroit today, um, nearly half the adults there are illiterate, which isn't a statistic in the book, but it's worth noting, illiteracy exists to great extents today all around the world. How about IQ? Does IQ guarantee you'll have success? Well, on average, sure, IQ does matter. Your ability to learn, understand, and absorb information is largely based on your IQ. But take, for example, the study done by Lewis Terman at Stanford. He looked at 1,470 people with IQs of 140 or above for more than 50 years. Here's what I found. 20% of these individuals were, were, quoting him, clear disappointments. Out of 150 men in the least successful category, only 8% received a college degree, and dozens only a high school diploma. Remember, these are all people IQ of 140 or above. The most successful men in the group received 98 graduate degrees, more than a tenfold disparity among men who are all in the top 1% in IQ. Two of the men tested in their childhood who did not make the 140 IQ cutoff went on to earn Nobel Prizes, and none of the men with IQs of 140 plus ever received a Nobel Prize. Here's a quote. Men with the most outstanding achievements came from middle class and upper class families and were raised in homes where there were many books. Among men who were least successful, nearly one third had a parent who had dropped out of school before the eighth grade. How about in sports? Surely there are disparities in sports, but I bet you didn't know this. Most professional golfers have never won a single PGA tournament in their entire lives. While just three golfers, that is, Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicklaus, and uh, Tiger Woods won more than 200 PGA tournaments between them. That one blew my mind too. Agriculture, well, it's only developed in the last 10% of the existence of humans, as Sol points out. Something to think about. People, 
Obviously, there. this is the area where we should see the biggest disparities, and surely we do. But first, he just describes differences within families. A study of National Merit Scholarship finalists, for example, found that among finalists from first child families, the firstborn was the finalist more often than the other four siblings combined. IQ data from Britain, Germany, and the United States shows that the average IQs of firstborn children were higher than the average IQs of laterborn siblings. And the IQ of the secondborn children was often higher than the thirdborn, and so on. And, and keep in mind, it's easy to warp statistics, and he has a whole chapter on that, that's chapter four, but he notes that especially in these IQ studies, they use very large sample sizes in the hundreds of thousands versus, you know, using statistics how a lot of other people use them nowadays. It's easy to sample 10 people, get five responses you want, and then claim there's a 50% disparity, whatever you're measuring. This is done all the time. If you've ever taken a statistics class, the main intuition of that class, if you didn't get it, was that it's very hard to prove anything. Keep this in mind when you're evaluating any statistics. So continuing on, he notes that a study of Britons found that 23% of those who were the eldest child went on to receive the degree compared to 11% of those who were the eldest child and 3% of those who were the 10th child. 22 out of 29 of the original astronauts in the Apollo program were either first born or were only child. 22 out of 29. Twins tend to average several points lower IQs than people born singly. When one of the twins is still born or dies early, the surviving twin average is an IQ closer to that of being born singly. Now, this next fact is really interesting. Think about this. Children of parents with professional occupations have been found to hear 2,100 words per hour, while children from working class families hear 1,200 words per hour, and children from families on welfare hear 600 words per hour. Countries. Well, keep in mind, Scotland and Japan were very backwards nations, as he put it, yet they had some of the most rapid advancements in terms of history. For Scotland being a poor and, quote, an economically lagging nation, a number of the leading intellectuals in Britain were, in the 18th and 19th centuries, from Scotland. James Watt, Adam Smith, David Hume, Joseph Black, Walter Scott, James Mill, son John Stuart Mill. Another random fact, he points out that among the Scots, they promoted the idea that everybody should learn to read so as to be able to read the Bible personally, rather than have priests tell them what it says and means. Hmm. Japan. He notes that in 1853, there were ships who visited Japan, and they were astonished to see a train when presented with one. But remember, Japan later went on to produce bullet trains that would, quote, exceed anything produced in the United States. China. I can't, but help, I can't help but note this, but uh, this particular section was something I would have never thought about. So he says that China for centuries was the most technologically advanced nation in the world, even in the Middle Ages. The Chinese had cast iron a thousand years before the Europeans. Here's the kicker. A Chinese admiral led a voyage of discovery that was longer than the Columbus's voyage, generations before Columbus's voyage, and, and ships far larger and more technologically advanced than Columbus's ships. Now, why have you never heard about this? We all heard about uh, uh, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, that old quote. Well, in 1433, the government of China decided to discontinue such voyages, but they didn't stop there. They forbid voyages and 
the building of ships that could go on these journeys. The goal is to reduce the influence of the outside world on Chinese society, and being isolationist, they paid the price, as Sol put it. The Portuguese took over the port of Mako, the British took over the port of Hong Kong, and eventually Japan seized more mainland territory in China. It's really only been the last century that China has become a superpower again. One last fact related to them is as late as 1994, the 57 million overseas Chinese produced as much wealth as the billion people living in China. He talks quite a bit about the Jews, but you can go read it for yourself. One thing he notes is that Hitler rejected Jewish scientists while America embraced them. And it was actually Jewish uh, nuclear physicists who played a large role in the development of the American nuclear bomb. Statism kills any way you look at it. Institutions. Macy's and Bloomingdale's, started by lowly peddlers. J.C. Penney and F.W. Woolworth, started by men in poverty. Hewlett Packard began in a garage. Many companies have. Uh, Eastman Kodak has a dominant firm in the photography industry when George Eastman changed everything and made cameras and film accessible to the masses. For decades, Eastman Kodak sold most of the film in the entire world. By 1993, Fujifilm had gained a 21% share in the market, but Kodak still persisted on. Even by 1998, excuse me, 1988, they employed 145,000 workers and annual revenues peaked at 16 billion in 1996. Yet the digital camera would forever bankrupt them. Worldwide sales of film cameras peaked in the year 2000, but by 2003, digital camera sales had already surpassed them. A few years after that, the peak sales the film industry had made previously was now being reached by the digital cameras market. Nature, it's surely unequal. 90% of all the tornadoes occur in the United States, but more specifically in Tornado Alley. Lightning occurs more often in Africa than in Europe and Asia put together, even though Asia alone is larger than Africa or any other continent. On a single Peruvian tree in America's Amazon basin, there are 43 species of ants found compared to the entire ant fauna of the British Isles. Eight times as many species of fish have been caught in an Amazonian pond uh, the size of a tennis court as exists in all the rivers of Europe. So we finish off the chapter by just noting that, quote, the world has never been a level playing field. Coastal peoples have long tended to be more prosperous and more advanced than people of the same race living farther inland, while people living in the river valleys likewise tended to be more prosperous and more advanced than people living in the mountains. Areas near the sea and in temperate zones of 8% of the world's inhabited land, 23% of the world's population, and 53% of the world's gross domestic product. All right, everybody, we'll see you back for chapter two tomorrow. Get this book, buy it on Amazon. It's an amazing book. Peace and love. See you tomorrow.